welcome to the New Flesh Podcast, for the podcast you deserve. My name is Jonathan Astro. This is Ricky Allpike. Ricky, what's up? I'm feeling good today and got a special guest. Wonderful. Who are we, who are we talking to? We are talking to the one and only Bettina Arndt, who is uh, an icon in Australia. This is big. This is big. She's glorious and I cannot wait. Mm, let's get straight into it. All right. All right, we're very pleased today to uh, bring you a very special guest. Uh, she's an icon in Australia, the one and only Bettina Arndt. Uh, it was sex that first made Bettina Arndt famous. She started out as one of Australia's first sex therapists before becoming a respected social commentator on gender issues. Alarmed by the unfair treatment of men in, in our society, she's now devoting all her time to making YouTube videos, writing and making media appearances about men's issues and the anti-male feminist agenda. Welcome to the New Flesh Podcast. Thank you, Ricky. Uh, Bettina, now I, have a, I just have a quick uh, question. In preparation for today, look, I did a deep dive into your YouTube account and, you know, just to fill in some gaps uh, in my knowledge of your work. And I have a question. How are you not cancelled already? There, are, there, are there daily attempts to cancel you? I am cancelled. <laughs> <laughs> I was thoroughly cancelled last year, Um because I was very stupid, really. I mean, I no, there's no way. I've been out. Sorry, I'll go back. Um, I've been not working in a full time job for many years. I've been just self employed. There was no way they could get me fired from anywhere. <laughs> Nothing I could do. And I was stupid enough to accept a honours award from the government. And it was on for young and old. I mean, within hours of that, me receiving that award. The feminists absolutely flexed their muscles and they rolled out all these heavy... I mean, the first day they had an Attorney General condemning me and saying I had my award to be rescinded, and it went on from there. <laughs> every, right. every day someone else knew attacking me. I mean, in fact, interesting, the Honours Award people said there's never been a fuss like that. They had, And then, then all my followers, luckily... Um, got off their bottoms and started writing letters themselves. And so they, there were just as many people saying, of course I should get an award as, as people attacking me. But it was all, I mean, it was very frustrating for me because it was all orchestrated. And this was all being, you know, the whole thing was being orchestrated by this end rape on campus activist called Nina Fennell, who's been gunning for me for decades. Um, she, well, not decades, I suppose about 10 years, um, because of my work on campuses, and she was determined to take me out, and this was the opportunity. And they did a really good job. I mean, mainstream media uh, it, it won't touch me at the moment, not at all. So, uh, you know, having been in on television and radio for 45 years of my life, I'm now <laughs> deplatformed. But you're, you're in good company, though. Uh, <laughs> we're we're, we're cancelling Richard Dawkins. We're cancelling everyone. So it, it's really indiscriminate at this point. Oh, really annoys me is I don't even get mentioned as being cancelled. You know, in Australia, when the mainstream media talks about, the, you know, the people who've ha had a lot of flack, I'm not even <laughs> included there, which, which is particularly annoying, I must say. Mm. Anyway, here I am. I mean, I'm still doing what I've been doing for years um, in, in terms of, um, you know, writing and producing videos and so on, but uh, the, the mainstream media has just died. Well, forget those clowns. We've got some delicious topics to cover today. <laughs> we do, we do. Well, Bettina, I'd like to start with a very broad question, uh, one which I hope will lead us on to talking about the situation on, on university campuses and schools, and that is, are women safe to walk the streets in Australia? 
Um, it's a good question. It's called they're safe. Uh, as most women realise, I mean, it's an incredibly safe country. Violence in Australia actually has been going down for decades. Violence towards women has been going down overall. Um, the feminists love to trot out statistics based on whether people have ever be, had been assaulted in their lifetime, which, of course, for people like me, I'm in my 70s, I mean, that could have been 50 years ago. That's not what's happening now. Um, so they, they're very good at fudging the data. And, I mean, I think it's appalling, this campaign, to try to teach women that they're not safe on our streets. Of course, males are much more likely to get assaulted on our streets. We don't give a stuff about that. I mean, the only time we do anything about that for some peculiar reason was that fuss around the king hits, remember, the mm. young men being punched. And then we closed down the nightlife of the whole city over that. I mean, it's just incomprehensible. Yet men are assaulted every day, but no one gives it stuff. Um, and women comparatively rarely, thank goodness. And, you know, it, it's not good for our society to spread this cultural fear. There's a perception out there that our universities are also unsafe spaces for young women and that women are likely to experience sexual assault during their time on campus. Now, I, th- I feel like we're led to believe that there's a sort of a madman atmosphere going on in campuses in 2021. Where, where, where does this come from? Well, this is carefully cultivated. I mean, it took them, you know, most of the last decade to prepare the groundwork for this. Um, it was a campaign that started in America. Of course, they did exactly the same thing in America, um, promoting the idea that there was a, a rape crisis on campus. This was under the Obama administration. And, of course, the person who absolutely championed this was what Joe Biden. He he took this up and ran with it and said, we have to change the culture of America and the place to do that is on our campuses. And he required all publicly funded universities to set up tribunals um, to adjudicate rape on campus. And that was in response to this fake, absolute fake campaign where they manufactured data claiming there was, you know, huge incidents of sexual assault on campus. And if you look carefully at that data, it was... a <laughs> All the questions were so stacked. You know, anything that had ever happened to you was regarded as rape. If you'd had a glass or two to drink, that was regarded as rape, whatever it was. And that's how they got those false statistics. But that was enough to set the whole ball rolling in America. And we, I just tracked this. I was writing about this at the time. And you could see it coming here. And you could see the first survey published by the Union of Students in Sydney, in Australia claiming there was a high incidence of rape on campus, and then all the media took it up. So it went on. It was a deliberate campaign. Um, And sure enough, they achieved the same thing in Australia. They bullied all our universities into um, setting up regulations to adjudicate rape on campus. And and we remember we had a Human Rights Commission. Our Australian Human Rights Commission spent a million dollars of our money to, do, to try to get evidence of this rape crisis. And it was a total fizzer. I mean, it was absolutely hilarious because all they got was 0.8% of people on campus that had experienced any sort of sexual assault using the broadest possible definition, like you being tricked into sex against your will, um, or and it included being touched up by a stranger on the train to uni. It wasn't even involving other people on campus. 
It could be anywhere. So this one, not Campus Race, I actually went to uh, when this data, this survey was announced, I talked to them. We've got a very good uh, crime statistics organisation in New South Wales, the Bureau of Crime Statistics, um, and they got pulled out the data showing universities are 100 times safer than the rest of the community on average. I was going to ask that about what's the connection between uh, the, the numbers in broader society and the university. As is logical. I mean, we, God, if they, if they aren't safe and there's something wrong with our society because you're dealing with really well-educated people and you'd hope, and people you'd hope have been thoroughly inculcated in the modern culture about respect for women and so on. I mean, of course they're really safe places um, compared to, what, an Indigenous community back at Burke or somewhere. I mean, we know where the high incidence of assault is, and that's precisely in those sort of communities and in certain other ethnic communities, but not amongst well-educated young Australians on our campus. It was a total snow job. And so all they found was that really low incidence of sexual assault, and then they found sexual harassment, which was mainly unwanted staring. That was the major thing they found, and yet every newspaper, every magazine, every television station that next day said, oh, crisis on our campus, sexual violence. They started talking about not sexual assault anymore, but sexual violence, which, of course, encompasses this harassment, this this, this Low-grade harassment. Um, we used to we used to call that ogling. Well, ogling, yeah, <laughs> ogling, ogling, ogling. Yeah, and, but you're not under, you know, a gaze is an assault now. Anyway, that's all they came up with, and I wrote to every university in Australia, saying, "Why are you scaring off overseas students from coming into Australia by buying into this false narrative?" That there's a rape crisis. I mean, it just made no sense. It was hilarious because all the, you know, the media units of the universities wrote things. Just, well, Mickey Mouse answers back to me, <laughs> um, which said nothing, of course. Uh, but everybody knows it was a total slow job. But they got their way, and that all these regulations were set up. And every week in Australia, young men are being falsely accused on our campuses. They go up before these kangaroo courts and they get done over. They get thrown out of university. They get publicly shamed. They get their whole education and their lives derailed and no one gives a stuff. Mm. What's what's the course of action for someone in that situation, uh, a young student who has been accused? Is there is there an avenue to appeal or...? The course of action is, is don't do anything they tell you to do without getting proper, proper help. Come to me. I mean, I, I'm having a steady trickle of students contacting me every year now. Every, you know, I've got about a dozen we're dealing with at the moment. Um, go to a lawyer. Don't go near those committees on your own, is my advice. And even though the university says you can't go to a lawyer, ignore that. The universities have no authority. Uh, for it, it, they had no authority for introducing these regulations. I mean, one of the key battlegrounds I've been involved in is talking to our university regulator, which is called TEXA, and pointing out that all the evidence is, is they overreached their authority in setting up these regulations. Under, under the, the higher education regulations, they're required to treat students equally. 
they claim they set up these regulations to keep young women safe, essentially. Um, and it means at the expense of denying the, the accused young men proper legal rights. Now, that is a breach of their regulations. And we're, we're persecuting, <laughs> persecuting, hopefully, prosecuting that in various ways, um, uh, talking to people at Texas, uh, raise it. We, we had questions raised in, in um, Senate Estimates Committee, you know, in all sorts of ways of, of pointing out what's going on here. Most people aren't remotely interested. Uh, it's very the mainstream media absolutely ignores this issue. What What do you think the underlying motivation for this this campaign to uh, to make things look dangerous for women on campuses are? And what's the motivation behind that? Well, it's it's very straightforward. I mean, it's as as Joe Biden said, he wants to change the sexual culture. He wants yet more rape convictions. That's what they want more rape convictions. The feminists are really upset about the fact that most sexual assaults everywhere, America here, involve young people. It's mainly people under under 20, actually. But, you know, great numbers under 20, certainly under 25, are the main group who are likely to end up with a sexual assault charge. And um, what really annoys the feminists is that if, you know, a young couple, maybe they've been dating or maybe they've just hooked up together, have sex, she accuses him of rape. The jury doesn't know what to believe in these he said, she said cases. And we're talking about really severe penalties for sexual assault now. So they're not going to send a young bloke off to um, prison for seven years or 10 years when they really don't know where the truth is. And so they, a lot of these cases fall down in the criminal courts. And which is a very good thing. Thank God we've still got decent juries in this country. But of course, the feminists here and in America decided we have to get them out of these criminal courts. We have to set up our own courts where young men are denied normal legal protections. They're judged on a different standard of proof. Um, the balance of probabilities, the balance of probabilities for a case like this, rather than, you know. Um, mental lapse, what's it called normally? Um, sexual assault has the high, normally has the highest land level of proof required, but and this, they, they've gone right down to the lowest. And these guys are, are denied legal help. They're denied the right to cross-examine witnesses. They're, all the normal things you'd expect with a serious case like this are uh, uh, withheld from them, and that's why they go down. They are thrown out of universities. I mean, some of the cases I'm involved with at present, um, we've actually just, uh, which I'll be talking about very soon, we've just had a, a win um, against Sydney University, which is pretty exciting. Um, and we have another one in the, going before the Australian Human Rights Commission. So we're finally, ta- I have a group of lawyers working pro bono, taking legal action against the universities over the way they're treating these students. Um, but incredible stories. One of them at University of New England, I made a video with this young guy, who, well, actually with his mother. He wanted to make the video with me and I said no. He was quite happy to speak out, but there's too much stigma attached to having been accused of rape, even if it's the whole case has been thrown out, as was true in his, his situation. And he was accused by a girl who was very unstable, who was known to have mental health problems. She... 
uh, attempted suicide. You know, there were, everybody in the college knew this was a slightly crazy kid. She makes an accusation which couldn't have been true. He was absolutely able to prove it. He didn't even find out this accusation was made for five months. The university allowed him to continue living on campus with this girl and did nothing until the next year when he goes back to uni in whatever it is, February, um, it turned out that the mother of someone who knew the, the accuser had a fit that he was still there and made a, a complaint to the university. And they removed him within hours, threw him out of the university in front of everybody. Everybody knew this was going on. And then eventually the girl withdrew her accusation. She wasn't even at, on campus then, withdrew the accusation. And he would say, oh, you can go back to uni now. I mean, that shame this boy. He was a... a a nursing student, he's lost a year of his studies, he's publicly humiliated. The cases like this are everywhere, and it's just abominable how young people are being treated, how young guys are being treated. And I, of course, went out on campuses or two or three years ago speaking out about this um, to try to draw attention to what's going on here, which is a very entertaining year of my life, <laughs> believe me. <laughs> To, to confront these mad protesters who had all these rallies, you know, to keep me off campus and I was dangerous. And, and then they, at, at Sydney, um, they, um, you know, they were really pretty ferocious and they were pushing around my audience as I tried to get through to the venue and, and screaming abuse of us all. And in the end, um, the riot squad had to be brought in to protect us. And... I mean, that was actually one of the, the my recent really real achievements in a way because the the Morrison government, um, Dan, Dan Tian, who'd just been appointed education minister, stepped in and called a, a inquiry into free speech on campus. He was very supportive hmm. of the fact that I had every right to talk about what was going on there. And that led to, I mean, they've now introduced legislation to require universities to uphold free, free speech. Uh, which was pretty exciting, you know. But that was, of course, not, not the main game for me. I mean, I, I'm still involved in this uphill battle to get anyone to acknowledge what's going on on our campus. Well, you know you are on the right track when they call the riot squad on you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was very terribly exciting at the time. <laughs> well, perhaps we'll broaden out from campus a little bit uh, because in New South Wales and Victoria recently, uh, there's some new consent laws that uh, reforms that are uh, close to being pushed through. Um, I think they've gone through. But they've gone through, right? Okay. Last My apologies. Two weeks. Two weeks. Up. From your perspective, uh, are these worthy reforms? <laughs> yeah, that's a real joke, isn't it? So what these reforms do is they talk. It's about enthusiastic consent. That prior to any sexual encounter, each person. I mean, we of course usually talking about the man has to seek enthusiastic consent from the woman about what's about to happen. Can I nibble your ear? Can I, you know, stroke your neck? Is it all right if I? And she has to actually say something or indicate very clearly that she's consenting to that. And we're not talking about the beginning of sex, you know, let's go to bed together. We're talking about every step of the way. Hmm. Can I touch your breast now? Is it all right if I touch your nipple? I mean, any, and anything else other than that is now illegal in New South Wales. And this applies to all of us. This applies to your parents. This applies to people who've been married for 50 years. 
all sex is illegal if it doesn't have that enthusiastic consent. And it's absolutely ludicrous. Mm. I recently wrote a blog um, about what sex is actually like out in the real world, um, which was based on research I did, oh, it was probably a good decade ago. I did some lovely, I spent two or three years of my life doing wonderful research, getting couples to keep diaries about how they negotiate sex in their relationships. It was, it was mainly focused on sexual, you know, mismatched desire when one person, usually the man, wants sex more than the woman. And how do they work that out? How do they negotiate how often they have sex? But it, I had, so I had diaries from hundreds of people about this stuff. And I went through the other day and pulled out diaries which talk about how couples actually work out consent. And, of course, no one does that. No one says, mm. is it okay if I, you know, stroke your nose or tickle your ear or whatever? Um, no one does it. What, what most couples do who've been together for a long time is they have their little rituals. And she knows he's in the mood. And, and hoping for the green light if he does, you know, if he's very attentive or all that stuff, which can start at the breakfast table, long ahead, where you, you pick up on each other's moods. Um, and then, you know, what it, well, of course, what sex has always been all about is men to having to take the risk to touch the woman and see how she reacts. That's, that's what sexual consent, I, I mean, it's a risky position for men and always has been, but that's what women want. Very few women want to be asked, mm. and that's the reality. And we're going out into our schools and pretending this is all a male problem because men won't, you know, aren't seeking consent, whereas the biggest problem of all is women don't want to give it. They don't want to be asked. They often don't know their own minds. I mean, I used to do a lot of work with young people, and the problem for teenage girls in thinking, oh, I'll just get pissed so I don't have to make a decision about whether I go to bed with him. It's much easier to, to get carried away and not having to take responsibility for this decision. So they absolutely set the guy up for the fact that they're, they're appearing to give consent, but they actually haven't made any you know, decision one way or another. They expect him to push through that. Or women who want to be persuaded, or women who like to play hard to get, or you know, all the games women play. We've done it from time immemorial and we want to keep doing it. There's a there's hundreds of thousands of books sold every year, which are bodice rippers, you know, chiclet about men, you know, the dark stranger sweeping her off her feet and taking her. And you know, that's what has been the stuff of women's fantasy forever mm. it seems to go seems to go uh, uh, go contrary to to two women's desire doesn't it to to have this this very official mediated way of negotiating you know sexual uh activity seems uh just a turn off total turn off i used to, one of the things i did for about five years in my long life was online dating coaching you know when the online dating thing started i Found lots of my friends were coming to me saying, help me write your, my, your profile, you know. Um, people didn't know how to do that. And, of course, I, having been a journalist for 40 years, I, I found that very easy. Plus, I, you know, I do know a lot about what attracts people to each other. I wrote this, I must say I wrote wonderful profiles for people. Um, and I got, and I spent, you know, five years advising women on how, you know, how 
these early dates and how the relationship was progressing. And God, there's no way those women wanted to have, if a, if a man asked, can I kiss you? He was probably nine out of 10 women would think he's a total nerd. Are we headed for the legal waiver, the date night legal waiver? Is that where we're headed? We're, he- we're, we're heading for a lot of lawyers getting a lot richer and a lot of men being falsely accused. This is just another weapon being handed to women who are pissed off with men in their lives. You know, you, st- you, you have a hookup and you hope it's going to lead on to a re- wonderful relationship and it doesn't, so you decide to punish him uh, or your relationship breaks up and he goes off with someone else. You just, this is the perfect way of getting at him. Nothing like a rape accusation. But this is also so confusing to me because, I mean, I, I think this affects absolutely everybody I, I, out there in the broad, broader community. But if you are on the left and you're worried about, you know, minorities, you're worried about new Australians, you're wor- aren't people in, you know, if you're, if you're new to the country and you can't understand the language, aren't you going to get in a bit of trouble like with this? Oh, and how. I mean, interestingly, I was talking to someone who's very involved with the um, the campus rape stuff in America, you know, in helping families of accused young men. And there's quite a lot of evidence now that the males who are most likely to be accused are people new to our culture, are people who don't know the norms, who are people who are a little bit, don't know English very well or a little bit uncomfortable socially because we behave differently from the way that they grew up. Um, I mean, Talk about setting newcomers to our country up for trouble. They are prime targets, those guys. Well, then this is a this is a bit of an own goal for the extreme left. Absolutely. We might, one of the cases we, we, we I'm involved in involves a, a young Mexican doctor who'd only been here a few months in Australia, and oh boy, was he done over. I'll be talking, we are talking about that soon. But I mean, it, it, you're absolutely right. It's particularly likely for males who haven't grown up in that culture. They're very vulnerable, Asian guys, whatever, you know. Yeah, for sure. Well, just bring it back to, to education again. Uh, recent statistics show that females account for a larger proportion of university graduates than men. Uh, do you think there's a conscious or perhaps unconscious favouring of girls in school to help them pursue higher education? Oh, this has been nothing to, it's not, nothing to do with this advice. It's been deliberate policy for well over a decade now, I think two decades, to give women or girls all sorts of extra help in all sorts of areas, but I mean, now more particularly in STEM subjects, um, special programs, special teaching, special, you know, whatever it is. Mm. Um, and we have well over 60% of graduates are, are female, they're still promoting, <laughs> it's just hilarious. I mean, they still have special um, requ- entry requirements for women into, get, to get into uh, engineering um, because they want more women engineers. Mm. They want more women firefighters. They want more women policemen. I mean, whatever it is, mm. um, they're just determined in the most ludicrous ways to not to achieve parity. They want more women. In everything now. Yep. Look at the lawyers. I mean, or, med- or medicine. I mean, if it wasn't for some tinkering to to achieve, try to achieve some balance, we'd have hardly any male lawyers emerging, hardly any male doctors. Mm. You know, all these systems have been in place for years, so advantaging women as expensive men. Feminism has got nothing to do with equality anymore. It's all about trying to win 
places for women and put men down. And that's why I'm no longer a feminist. But are there? Uh, but it, what I'm confused at is, uh, are there any roles out there? If 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 a woman can do the job, whatever it is, uh, where are these workplaces that that it is like uh, some sort of BBC show, like set in the like set in the '60s or something, where it's like, oh, you because you're a woman, you you can't work here. Like, uh, where where is this happening? It's not happening because it's, it can't happen because it, that would be discrimination, hmm. and an employer would be hauled up before the anti discrimination you know commission. Right. It cannot happen. It's not happening. All these jobs are open to women, but we don't see women lining up to be garbage collectors, do we? Hmm. Or to work on the all the really tough, dangerous jobs that keep the society running. Absolute difficult jobs. And the, I wrote recently about firefighting and how firefighting, some of the firefighting, some of the states now have tried to get 50-50 male-female firefighters which is t- and they've absolutely lowered the entrance requirement um, to get allow women to get in so they don't have to haul those big ladders anymore because otherwise they'd all be most of them would be locked out. Now there's always been women in firefighting and there women who are tough, strong women who work really hard and get in and do a terrific job. And everybody acknowledged that. The same in the police force. But uh, you're endangering the lives of other firefighters and of the community if you put people in those jobs who can't do it. And I dug out all the statistics showing there's a really high dropout rate of these female recruits, a very high injury rate because they're put into situations where they can't cope physically. Um, and and what, of course, they're doing is they're siphoning off those women into management roles. And, I mean, the figures are so disproportionate in terms of the level of women in the, in the fire force, firefighting force generally and the number in management positions, it's all show. And it's all about making statements. And it's just infuriating, particularly, I, mean, I know I was pleased to see some of the female firefighters in Victoria took it to their unions and objected to these gender quotas because it undermines their position in that job. Were they successful? No, they weren't no. Mm. Well, do you think there'll be a backlash uh, when we start to see maybe some situations where uh, people lose their lives or or big big fires get out of control because there are women that, that just can't physically fight those fires? Well, you know, even when things go wrong, there's an enormous amount of suppression of that sort of fact. I mean, there's a wonderful video I saw about the Israeli army and it was someone giving evidence to one of the parliamentary committees um, about injury rate of female recruits and incredibly high injury rate. And the feminists amongst the parliamentarians were shouting at him because they didn't want him to let this data. And it was pretty revealing, I thought. Mm. But a Guardian reader might say that you are just being a foot soldier for the patriarchy and that you want, you know, trying to keep the old boys club going. So, you know, what do we, how do we, how do we uh, sort of, meet that criticism? I mean, I grew up um, very, as a young woman, very excited about women having opportunities they never had before. I spent all my early career, I, joined, I became a sex therapist because I wanted to help women I mean, ha- have a good time in bed. I mean, I really wanted to help women um, be in a situation where they, where they could express what they needed in order to enjoy sexual pleasure and so on. Uh, and I spent the first at least 10 years of my life adult career um, promoting women's rights in various ways 
And then I, it gradually dawned on me that things were going overboard, that we achieved in Australia, we achieved many of the things I wanted for women pretty early. And we had a situation, as we said earlier, that you cannot discriminate against women in the workforce. They are required to be paid, not on the basis of what genitals they have, but on, on their work experience and their you know, job history and all the other things that you actually allowed, thank goodness, to take into account when you employ someone. And, of course, that's why we have a gender gap. Uh, gender pay gap because women work so many few hours over their life history that the men do and they take time out to look after their children they work. Um, all of that plays into the fact that, that women aren't going to earn the same as men who are often locked into working extremely long hours because they're paying mortgages they don't have choice about the sort of hours they work Anyway, uh, it's a long hot story, but I changed my view about feminism and about equality because I saw what was happening around me. I wanted a level playing field. I didn't want a situation where men are constantly denigrated, uh, constantly denied opportunities to give women opportunities that they haven't they haven't achieved on their own merits. Mm. Now, Bettina, I have a three year old son. And I'm very concerned about the kinds of things that are going to be said to him later on in his school life. Uh, we've heard cases recently in the Australian media of boys being made to stand up in class and apologise to female students for toxic male behaviour. Uh, we're seeing a real uh, pathologizing of male traits that we used to admire, traits like stoicism and competitiveness, ambition, uh, their desire and aptitude for being protectors, etc., how do we get to a situation where we're treating boys like this and how do we push back against it? We need parents, all parents, to become extremely active and vigilant about what their children are being taught. I had a letter just this week um, from someone sending me copies of the curriculum. His son is being, um, that is being pr promoted to his son. And, and this is the respectful relationship stuff that's being taught in Victoria um, we've been actually throughout the school system. Men are being taught that they are violent. Uh, men, are, you know, boys and girls are being taught that you know males are not always the ones who are violent. That, that males have to apologise for their violence. That, you know, toxic masculinity leads to aggression towards women. All this stuff, ideology being taught from a really early age, and we we have allowed this to happen. And parents who are allowing their boys to be taught to be ashamed of being male have to start to look carefully at what's going on there and stand up against the education authorities that are allowing this blatant propaganda to end up in our schools. But it's throughout our schools. Funnily enough, it's part of the, the domestic violence funding. And that's how they've managed to achieve this. They got bi literally billions of dollars to protect women from domestic violence. And they, through a real sleight of hand, used that to claim that domestic violence is all about um, respect for women. And, you know, if we taught, it's all about misogynist attitudes for women. And we have, therefore have to start with your three-year-old teaching him to be ashamed of being male and teaching him to take responsibilities for his violence. Mm. They've got this stuff into schools through that massive funding we've poured into domestic violence prevention. It, it seems to 
uh, to not acknowledge the fact that uh, that that women may play a part in domestic violence as well, because uh, you do see men being victims of domestic violence. We have had forty years of research, seventeen hundred peer-reviewed papers, which say that most domestic violence is not a male, a father terrorising his family. Most violence in families is two-way, and the women are just as, are actually more likely to instigate violence than the men are. The consequences are different because men are bigger and stronger, so women are more likely to eat, get injured when they start hitting each other. But women are right in there being violent towards their partners and towards their children. Just this week, I've just written a blog about um, child abuse and the fact that women, mothers, are much more likely to abuse their children than fathers are. When do you ever hear that? Mm. When do you ever see that? Our official stats bodies, the Institute of Health and Welfare, announced in 1997, a quarter of a century ago, that they weren't going to publish the gender of perpetrators of child abuse. Now, how do you justify that? And how do they get away with that for a quarter of a century? It's because they they want to promote the idea that men are the violent ones in our society and they simply whitewash women's violence. Mm. And the sad thing is it's the kids that suffer really from uh, from all of this, you know. We have, we have really good data, actually. Funnily enough, years ago they did a... Um, a survey where they asked young people, um, teenagers, whether they'd ever witnessed violence from their mums to their dads or their dads to their mums. And they were, within the percentage point, they were almost exactly the likelihood of having witnessed, you know, one or the other of those was, was almost equal. Mm. And the Institute of Criminology, in writing that up, omitted the data showing that just as many women were, the kids were seeing their mums abuse their dads as the other women know. They left that out. They said, oh, look how shocking this is. One in four kids have seen their fathers abuse their mothers. And they left out the other side of the equation. I mean, it's just extraordinary. These ideologues must have those awkward moments all the time. They must have those awkward, like that meme of Hitler, you know, getting the bad news in downfall. You know, they must have that all the time where they think, yes, now this is great. Well, you know, we're going to finally get that message out there that, you know, all men are, 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 you know, Genghis Khan or whatever, and then the, the data, here's the data, and it's awkward. They must have those awkward moments all the time where it's like, oh, no, what do we do, you know? Well, I've been reading some books recently on Russia. It is Stalinesque. It's really frightening, this official control of information and the fact that our, all our major institutions are playing to the feminist songbook. And, I mean, you would have thought there, are, there must be. I've actually had the odd bureaucrats contact me saying I'm very uncomfortable with how data is being manipulated. But none of them will speak out. And you've got to be the right feminist too because, you know, uh, I mean, I'm I, going back a bit now, but, like, you know, look at the way they've treated Jermaine Greer. Yeah. You know what I mean? Just, just, for, just for having a different opinion. Oh, anybody. Because she wasn't, she wasn't uh, you know, the person that you could just, you know, pigeonhole for the rest of her life. She's, she's done some deep thinking and she's got new ideas and people are like, oh, well, it's time for you to go. We don't like, you know, a woman who arguably has, you know, changed the lives of, of, of millions of women around the world, you know, in many ways, regardless of what you think of her, of her work, but like, you know, and, and to see her just thrown on the trash heap because, again, not the right 
uh, views? No, I mean, I've been really pleased when the whole Me Too stuff started what, a couple of years ago now, a whole bunch of old feminists, like ex-feminists like me, <laughs> Margaret Ashwood, I mean, there was a, significant figures, older women say, hang on, this is crazy. You know, why are we just naming people with no evidence as to whether this actually happened or not? This is not what justice is supposed to be all about. I mean, you know, we, we've seen a bit of kickback, but I think only from a generation who feels they haven't got much to lose. I mean, it is, it is seriously dangerous for men and women in decent jobs to speak out about this stuff. And that's absolutely frightening to me. That's so true. Yes, no, the the it's a very censorious atmosphere out there. Um, well, a slight pivot to uh something, but maybe perhaps a little lighter, although no less terrifying in many ways. Uh, we also review mo- movies on our podcast uh, every now and then. Everything from Revenge of the Nerds to Friday the Thirteenth. This week it was Basic Instinct. I don't know if you recall the film. Yeah. You know, uh, but uh, we rate the movies on our very own Me Too scale. So, you know, we apply these strict modern standards just to see how they stack up. And the results are, you know, they're funny, but they're quite shocking usually. So I get the feeling that if we showed Police Academy on a campus today, anywhere, that there would be a total absolute riot. The riot squad would come. Like they would, they would be like, oh, my God. So <laughs> what has happened to make everyone so intolerant of what used to be good old-fashioned entertainment? Well, and particularly sex. I mean, <laughs> well, you know, that's a really fascinating aspect of all this the feminists are so censorious and so anti-sex. Mm. That, you know, the, the suffragettes had a slogan, votes for women, chastity for men. And one branch of the whole feminist movement is about reining men in and putting a, you know, it started off with we can't have, you know, women displaying their bodies as Miss Playboy or Miss America or whatever it was, and then, then anti-pornography and then anti-this and it, and it goes on and on, and, and it's getting worse and worse. Anything to do with bawdy sexual humour is now regarded as sexist and, and offensive. Talk about um, uh, strange bedfellows. Does, doesn't that mean sort of the religious right and the, the, the feminist left are now in cahoots? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's just <laughs> ordinary, isn't it? <laughs> It's bizarre. It's really yeah. bizarre and creepy and weird. Like, like when- totally creepy. And, you know, look, there's always been women who enjoy being outrageous sexually, who telling sexual jokes, flirting. You know, they like having men come on to them. They, they don't want to be in workplaces where no one ever dares wink at each other. Or, this has all been imposed on us, all these rules and regulations, Against the will of not only I'm sure I'm sure the majority of men, but many many women as well. We don't want sex removed from our life. We don't want eros and flirting and <laughs> bawdy humour removed from our lives. Who in the hell are these people telling us mm. we're not allowed to enjoy that anymore? <laughs> I'll tell you who they are. Uh, it's we've got a good little uh, couple of excerpts here from Mary Claire. They did a list of the best eighties movies. I'll just give you three. So. This is what they, they they tell you what the best movies are of the eighties. They give you a little warning just in case. So Beverly Hills Cop, uh, it's got a little uh, note here: misogyny, homophobia, racial slurs, and racism. So stay away from that. Uh, <laughs> broadcast news, discussion of sexual assault, and the next one: Raiders of the Lost Ark, consent, misogyny, animal cruelty, and torture. So they're just letting you know that these are the things. These are good <laughs> movies, but you know just. Be aware. But you look at you look at Netflix. I mean, during the lockdown, I mean, we went, I, we tried again and again to find something watchable. 
they're all woke. Yeah, <laughs> so true. Yeah, there's no decent blokes in these movies anymore. Yeah. Mm. Um, there's all these wimpy guys crawling, groveling to women and yeah. strong, powerful women treading all over them. I mean, it just makes me puke. <laughs> well, Bettina, I, I actually took my son uh, earlier in the year to the cinema for for the first time. He's only three, and we saw a, a, Dis- a new Disney movie called A Mayor and the Last Dragon. And there were virtually no male characters in the movie at all. Uh, there was no love interest. There was no uh, there was no strong uh, sort of male counterparts to the female heroines. It was all females, all kicking butt, all uh, solving the problems, and men were just nowhere to be seen. And what really annoys me is in documentaries and films and so on based on historic events, they will always I – mean, you, you see Chernobyl? I mean, there yes. were scientists, and, of course, the good scientists, they had made a woman. I mean, they just manufactured her because mm. any, anyone with a white hat now has to be a woman and the evil people are always the men. And no matter what historic basis they for or not, I mean, I am sick to death of women. But, but Tina, I'm sick to death of f- female heroines, you know. But, Bettina, <laughs> is, is this what women want, though? Like, like I... I... Like the, 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 they're pushing this idea out there that, like my wife, for instance, is desperate to see just endless female protagonists, and that she's got now suddenly got zero interest in ever seeing a man on screen again. Yeah, no, it, it, I think it is total madness, and I'm sure there are plenty of people like me who would much rather. I would go with me going back to out old movies and things because the only things that are bearable to watch. Now, you know, I'm, I'm involved with this group. We, in, last year, after being cancelled, we set up a group called Mothers of Sons, and these were all women whose sons have faced incredible injustice in all sorts of situations in the family court, in you know, the, or rape accusations or whatever it is. And so using the mums to tell the son's stories, we thought we might get some traction with the media. You know, these are women. You're supposed to believe women, aren't you? Mm. Oh, no way. <laughs> they're, not, they're not the right ones. They're not the right ones. That's, that's the media what they totally ignored us. Anyway, we've got this great website with incredible stories of what's happening to men out there. Um, but, I mean, all those mums. I know they 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 all agree with me that they love to they just can't bear all this stuff. If you enjoy what we do here on the New Flesh podcast, there are a number of ways you can contribute to the success of the show. Consider supporting us financially by becoming a Patreon member and donating monthly or yearly. Alternatively, you can donate money through the Find Me a Coffee platform. If you're strapped for cash at the moment, there are other ways to support The New Flesh. You can give us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. These really do help others find our show and help spread the word. Or you can just simply tell your friends about us. Back to the show. What what I wonder, Bettina, is feminists, you know, ultra hardcore feminists out there, they're, they're having children, they're having sons. Clementine Ford. Clement, Clementine Ford a has son, a son, presumably. I think. Yeah, and now she's ashamed of him being a son. Yeah. Well, I'm. Yeah, I mean, either either they're going to change their mind because they they see and interact with their son, or or, or they're going to try and you know enforce some sort of change on them to to yeah to. Yeah, I mean, they think they're going to raise these good men who will you know ask for consent and do all the right things and they'll never get into trouble. Well, I wish I was think I would be around in forty years to see what how that 
works out. <laughs> the, the assumption that if you stay on the straight and narrow and do the right thing, you can never face a false accusation is total crap. I mean, there are males who behave decently and well towards women all their lives mm. who then encounter a woman who's angry with them for some reason and who will come up with a false allegation. Mm. It's happening everywhere. So before, before we leave the screen, just thinking about uh, male desire, since we were watching Basic Instinct this week, uh, it really did occur to me that you know, I wonder if male desire has been stigmatized today. For example, uh, on one of the recent, the, the latest Bond film, this goes is on the internet. They talked about that the word Bond girl was banned from set. You know, no one was allowed to say Bond girl. And and my wife and I noticed that all the major female characters in Bond, for instance, were either asexual, uh, mumsy, or completely masculine. Do you know what I mean? So, I, I, do you do you feel that male des, uh, desire has been stigmatized? Oh, totally. And as I, I, I sort of mentioned earlier, I, mean, I think it's a very deliberate tactic. Um, and I mean, it's a really sad thing for men because there's a growing desire gap between men and women, and, and the researchers have been tracking it for the last few decades. Um, so, women, more and more women are going off sex. And more and more relationships uh, end up with no sex at all or very little sex in their relationship. You know, where women have always put on the brakes on male desire and now they're given absolute licence to just (laughs) walk away from the whole car if they're not interested. I mean, just to, to say, that's it. I've encountered couples where, you know, second child was born and she said, that's it, I'm not interested. No sex for the next 20 years. Wow. And it is tragic for men. And these are men who love their wives and who end up feeling totally, um, I mean, it's really degrading to have to beg for sex. It, is sex really that, uh, that much of an ordeal for, for women? It, you know, it's made out to be it's, it's this, this the big thing. And, and I'm not talking about rape. I'm just talking about sex between uh, husband and wife, for no, instance. Well, see, I, I've always argued that it's one of the areas where you need to negotiate in any relationship. And you do things you don't always feel like at the time. I cook big meatballs so I don't really like them, but he loves meatballs so I'll do that. Whatever it is, we do that in all sorts of areas of life. And the feminists have always argued that sex is different. You know, you can't suffer through unwanted sex. No, I'm not suggesting you suffer through unwanted sex, but I'm saying you talk yourself into wanting it. I mean, when I, I wrote a book called The Sex Diaries, and that was, it wasn't my idea. It was an American therapist who talked about the idea of just doing it. And the concept is about the fact that, well, it came from a, a, a Canadian gynecology professor did a whole lot of research on women who never experienced sexual desire. And when she really examined them in, in detail, she found that many of them reported they can enjoy sex and they can, you know, that so they could go in and have pleasurable sex without any desire in advance. Two conditions need to apply. One, they need to be with a man who knows how to make love to it. I mean, no point. You're not going to look forward to sex with it's lousy sex. But see, you know, if your guy, if he knows what to do and you have a willingness to be receptive, and that's the key point. If you know, okay, I don't feel like it now, but give me half an hour and we'll watch a bit of telly, we'll do something and then I'll relax. And I can know that once, what you know, I, I talk about putting the canoe in the water and get, and get started. Once, once that canoe is in the water and you let yourself relax, de- desire will kick in. And I, this is a concept where if you talk to women about it, many of them know that. 
I might not be feeling remotely like it, but if I get my head in the right place, I know I'll really enjoy it and I will have a good time. This is not about one for the team, you know, sacrificing yourself for the sake of your mate. This is about I will enjoy this experience and it'll be good for our relationship. Women say all the time, I don't know why I don't do it more often. But you see, if women are being told by our society, don't do it, if you're not interested, that's his problem, rather than being told, as they used to be told, I mean, women back in the 50s were told sex was part of the wifely duty and, and you know, it was something you knew you had to, it was part of a marriage. And now we absolutely slammed the door on that. And it's been a total tragedy for men in marriages today. And women, you know, we are very good at getting our heads in the right place if we want to, and that's the key. And I, when men say to me, how do I pick a woman who I know is going to be in it for the long haul? You know, oh, she's a really sexy chick. She's going to be fine. No way, Jose. I mean, very often those sexy chicks will turn off sex within a year or two and not be interested. You need a woman who has the right ideas in her head about the importance of sex in a marriage and about a spirit of generosity where she will make the effort to keep sex alive in her head so that she is willing to give pleasure. And it's not always about having intercourse. You can, you have other ways of skinning the cat, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> oh, this is great. So many innuendos. It's, it's like, are you being served? <laughs> that's not very particular. Uh, that's not a very pleasurable <laughs> analogy to you. Know I know what you mean. I know what you mean. <laughs> so basically your advice is uh, fake it till you make it, basically. Fake it in your own head, yeah. Yes, I mean, yeah. Get, get, and we... We all do that in all sorts of aspects of life, don't we? Mm. Yeah. And that's yeah, part sure. of being a loving partner. Mm. Because the minute I say that, the feminine, I mean, if you if you Google me, there used to be this blog, Bettina Aunt Rape Cheerleader, you know, that I was encouraging men to rape women by saying, you know, women should work on their attitude. That's regarded as a totally retrograde thing to say. Mm. It it seems to ignore the the power that that a sexual relationship can have for for keeping uh, keeping couples together and uh, keeping love and respect between the two. It's about connection. Look, man, every man knows he can masturbate. It's not about getting your rocks off, is it? It's about wanting that connection, and not you don't want to live with a roommate or your sister. You expected part of that ongoing relationship, whether it's a marriage or, you know, living relationship, will be you'll be lovers. And without being lovers, you know, what have you got left? That's so true. Well, I, I wanted to turn focus now to the family and discuss a topic that you've been exploring for, for a while, and that is supervised contact between divorced or separated dads and their children. Um for those who don't know, supervised access is a system in which children that are in risk of abuse from either parent may have contact time in a safe and monitored environment. Uh, but in many cases, supervised access uh, is warranted, but uh, has become the default when there's unsubstantiated claims of domestic abuse made against fathers. Um, how prevalent do you think false or exaggerated allegations of abuse are towards fathers? And what effect do you think that's having on dads and their kids? Well, false allegations have become the weapon of choice in family law battles. <clears throat> We've had judges speak out saying that they're out of control in terms of the number of people making accusations which are never properly examined. They, they, they mean, as a result of that accusation, 
The man gets removed from his home. He often can't see his children for years. Uh, the fact he's had an allegation of violence used against him is used to gain more leverage in property battles to gain more, ac- you know, less access for him when it comes to the ultimate decision by the court. I mean, it's a really powerful weapon to use against a man. And magistrates have been surveyed saying, and they all they uniformly acknowledge this is right throughout the system. I've had policemen come to me saying police are really resenting having to impose unjust laws when they know many of their, these allegations are false. It's everywhere. And the child contact services is, is part of this whole problem because if there's any allegation, the judge or the judicial officer making the decision about interim custody before any allegation has been tested at all will not allow the man to have any direct contact with his children and will require him to have supervised contact, which means he goes to a, he might have to pay up to $300 a session to see his kids, to have some stranger in the room writing down everything he says. And not even writing down everything he says, distorting the reports that are ultimately given to to the court to make him out to be a bad parent and to only report things which make the man look bad. I mean, I wrote last week about what's happening in our child contact centres and they're an absolute scandal how that whole experience is being used to drive men away from their fathers and to teach children that their fathers are dangerous. How is it we have allowed this system to be set up across the country and no one is objecting to what's happening to dads and happening to children who are Mm. losing their fathers as a result of that. Mm. And does this process ever move to self-management between two parents? Because it seems like an endless cycle until the children until the child gets to 18, you know? Well, it doesn't last that long because most kids won't go. I mean, what 14-year-old go and sit in a room with a few toys, you know? I mean, sometimes the supervisors can follow the people around as they go to a park or to, you know, there are other ways of it being done, but it still can be very intrusive. I mean, there are people who work hard to make sure it's not an onerous experience and and to stay out of sight and to do the right things for the dads. But there are others in the system who are absolutely out to destroy the man's relationship with their children. And they work in cahoots with the woman um, who is, the women who are trying to get dad out of their children's lives. And that's just shocking. Is, is, Is that part of the industry, is that regulated, this supervision thing? Well, there's an enormous industry run by, you know, some of which goes to the big government sponsored organisations like Relationships Australia, which can be just as bad as an unregulated place. Um, But there are also all these cowboys making a fortune out of charging these excessive fees um, Mm. to run these services. And they they can also treat men abominably. You know, there are good people in the system, but there are heaps of people who are working, you know, as part of a team with the mothers to make life difficult for dads. And and you mentioned the whole business of it's supposed to be an interim phase, moving on to self-managed, you know, decisions around caring for kids. It very often doesn't happen because dad gives up. Kids don't want to come anymore. Um, He can't afford to keep paying those sort of fees. Uh, it's just too 
distressing for the dads to see every week the children being more, more afraid of them, more convinced that they're dangerous. There's ample research showing it's not working as an interim measure. It's, it tends to be something that is set in and, and doesn't lead on to anything. It's, and then those reports are used against men in court. How, how do you think the system could be overhauled to uh, not only weed out false abuse claims, but also uh, to, to make this sort of uh, situation easier for fathers if it ends up in that situation of, of supervised contact? We've got together a little group. I just announced last week to try to work out how we can set up contact services that treat men and women. It's not just, I mean, sometimes it's the man and the woman having supervised contact, but to treat men and women um, fairly and decently. Um, so we're exploring that. We're exploring ways of teaching men and their lawyers to do a better job resisting supervised contact in court rather than allow the women's lawyers to just railroad them into supervised contact. Uh, we need to teach judges. I mean, judges are being fed all this information, reinforcing the idea of dangerous dads, rather than talking about the research which shows, as I mentioned, um, that children are more at risk from their mothers and their fathers. How is it we allow just one-way propaganda when it comes to education of judges mm. and nothing in terms of the proper research showing the incidence of the real incidence of domestic violence in homes the real incidence of child abuse, the involved, women's role in family violence, all of this is being suppressed. We've just got a couple more questions uh, left, Bettina, but did you want to uh, expand on on uh, your work with mothers and mothers of sons a little bit? Yeah, I mean, the as I said, the idea was to get mums to tell their stories and we've got videos and we've got written stories by mothers of what's happened to their sons. You know, the 18-year-old guy who was accused of rape on his birth, the day after his birthday, um, incredible story. Uh, the mother t- talks about the fact that he ended up in briefly in prison. I mean, it was just horrendous for them. And in fact, the evidence was there to exonerate his the, their son for months and months and months before they actually ended up in 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 the courtroom where it was revealed there was DNA evidence showing this girl had DNA from two other men in her vagina on the night in question and not from the the son who'd been accused. And that family walked out of that courtroom and the jury was there clapping at the fact that the boy had been exonerated. Uh, and, uh, And this family wanted to charge the woman with making false allegations. And they were told by the police, we are not allowed to do that. The public prosecutor said we're under orders not to charge anyone with making false allegations because it will deter rape victims from coming forward. Our entire criminal justice system is being operated on that basis, that they're not allowed to take action on false allegations. And then the feminists can turn around and say, oh, there are no false allegations, they don't exist, because that's what the official statistics show. And it's a result of direct orders to our system to say we are ignoring false allegations. Mm, that's shocking. That atrocious. So you've set up this organisation to sort of uh, give a voice to, uh, to 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 mothers and maybe even grandmothers that are are concerned about their about their sons and, and use their stories. And we've got a mothers and sons Facebook page, which is very active. Every day we post all the stuff you never see. Mm-hmm. We post the stories. 
of false allegations. We post the stories of males being falsely accused in court and, and it being, you know, coming out that they didn't do it, mm-hmm. or the, you know, the, the gender quotas being set up to discriminate against men. And we're, we're telling the other side of the story that is never told on the Mother to Sons Facebook page. And we, we're getting a gro- growing following there, which is pretty exciting. Mm. Well, if any of our listeners out there are mothers with sons, we'd encourage them to... Well, uh... sons. I mean, this is really just a means of getting the message out to men, what's going on here, not just... I mean, men and the women who love them, and that brings in the mothers, but it brings in the sisters. It yes. brings in anybody who cares what's happening to men in our society. Mm. The last topic I wanted to cover, basically... I'm a huge Woody Allen fan. Now, I have a friend who was compelled recent, fairly recently. His wife, a friend of his wife's was coming over to his house and he felt compelled because of this woke friend to hide his Woody Allen books on the shelf. Now, um, this man's <laughs> reputation, Woody, has been widely trashed and to admit that you like Annie Hall now seems like a crime. So what's your perspective on the Woody Allen saga and maybe some advice for my friend? Oh, I um, I did a video with um, a wonderful Canadian woman who works to help uh, males being falsely accused, and Janice Fiamengo, you may know, who's one of the leading advocates for men in 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 Canada. Anyway, we just talked through the whole Woody Allen case and what the evidence actually showed. No, I know there's been a Netflix series recently which, you know, pushes um, the anti Woody line and misrepresents all the evidence he, he's you know that case he's been exonerated by all the official courts yeah i mean he okay he did a dubious thing in getting involved with this girl who'd been part of that family i mean who's now he's been his partner for many years i mean some people would argue that's inappropriate but he's not a rapist he's not a second he hasn't committed sexual assault there's no evidence of that mm. and mia is a piece of work mm. he's crazy Crazy, crazy. And, you know, so many, there's stories from other members of that family expose the craziness of that mother. And you have to see, you tell your friends to stand up and say, we, we, we don't wipe people's reputation on the basis of false allegations, mm-hmm. on unproven allegations, when the, particularly when the, the criminal courts have examined these cases and found there was nothing in it. We, you know, we cannot allow this sort of vigilanteism and this witch hunt to continue. And that line has been pushed by the opposite line, rather, has been pushed by uh, Ronan Farrow, who 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 has admitted on his podcast and whatnot, talking about this case. He has said, "Oh, I've read all the, uh, you know, I, I've read all the all the documents, and it's credible. It's credible." So what he's suggesting is what a lot of people are saying, which is. You know, because I say to these people, I go, look, it's fine. If you don't believe in the court system, then that's what we maybe need to talk about because, you know, it was a rigorous process and, you know, some fairly high courts in that land went through this case and, and said, no, 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 that's, it didn't happen. And so, but but Ronan Farrow is pushing this idea that we don't have to take that into account. There's some other you know, metaphysical thing that we can appeal to and just say, oh, yeah, but, you know, no smoke without fire, right? My basic point is we all, men and women, have to start standing up against this cancellation of people as a result of false allegations, um, denigrating people's work on the basis of something they said 30 years ago. Um, 
you know, we are allowing the mob to rule mm. and to wipe people out on the basis of one person's word about what happened. And that is really scary. But we are allowing that to happen. That's what I always, I, parliamentarians always say to me, we never hear from the other side. We get bombarded with stuff in mainstream media that it's very much the feminist narrative and we don't hear from the silent majority who would like to have proper discussion of all the things we've talked about today. That's part of the reason we started this podcast. So, yeah. And, yeah. and we cannot afford to allow that tiny, noisy, dangerous group to rule our society. Mm. And we have to stand up. Well, Bettina, we've just got a, a couple of short questions left. Um, you're an Australian icon. You've been interviewed on TV, radio, uh, around the nation for decades. Your writing's featured everywhere. Uh, your YouTube videos get heaps of views. And now you've dipped your toe into Substack. Uh, what made you move into that platform and how can we sign up? Um, well, I decided, I've been writing a newsletter for, for years just for my followers. And I decided to go make it more public on Substack. I'm still basically making it free uh, for most people. I occasionally publish something for my paid subscribers, but it's free. For most people who want to have a look at it, you just go in, look under my name, and you find it. And um, it's very interesting because I can see I'm attracting an audience of people who knew nothing about me, which is really exciting. And it's partly because I've been locked out of mainstream media, and this is my, my new platform. Mm. And I need lots of people to make it a big platform mm. <laughs> and spread the word about yeah. all the issues, really important issues I'm talking about. Mm. Well, we've talked about this, uh, John, on the podcast many times, that uh, I feel like there's starting to be a, a swing away from mainstream media for a lot of people that are interested in topics and issues, and they are looking to alternative places like Substack, like podcasts such as ours that, that aren't really tied to, to any affiliation with, with, with anything. And, um, yeah, I, I think that that part of um, the online world is going to grow and we're going to see legacy media uh, yeah. diminish, I think. I'm going to be doing a regular, regular column for Epoch Times too. So I'm, I'm actually looking outside, particularly outside Australia, to try mm. to get a more international audience Yeah. Um, because Australia is pretty locked up at the moment. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. it's, a, it's a grim, it's a grim outlook. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I've got a very selfish question that I ask all our guests. Um, I need to know, what are you reading right now? What's on your bedside table that you're reading? Oh, well, I've got, I, I, I'm dipping into various things. Let me have a think. Um, I can never remember the titles of anything when I'm asked. <laughs> um, I just finished Alexander Hamilton, which was the big, you know, that was like 800 pages. Wow. And, okay. And it's because my kids, I talked to my kids about whether I should go and see the, the musical and they said, you won't understand a word of the lyrics, mum. <laughs> <laughs> They've got no faith. But I thought, well, who is this character? I mean, it's an amazing book, an incredible story. Mm. Uh, oh, boy, did this man have an impact? Um, what else? But I read a lot of fiction mainly, but it's still an effort to find fiction that isn't woke. And that's always a challenge. So true. Well, I I have just told people this is what I do, and I tell my wife to do the same. But Victor Davis Hanson says that uh, you need to build a monastery of the mind. What an idea! <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, well, I'm always 
scrounging for suggestions of good books to read. So, Well, thanks so much, Bettina, for uh, coming on the podcast. And we'd love to have you back in the future uh, to talk about more topics because uh, – we could spend days talking about all this. The rabbit hole goes uh, long and deep, I think. So, um, yeah, good luck with the Substack. Uh, we encourage everybody to check you out. And, um, yeah, we hope to see you next time. Lovely. And if people want to contact me, they can find me through my website. Uh, particularly people, anyone who's accused on campus, please come to me. Mm. We need to expose what's happening here and, uh, and we can give you help. For sure. We will post links to uh, to all your different avenues there on our show notes in the podcast as well. Yeah. Lovely. All right. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Nice to talk to you. Thanks, <laughs> you too. Okay, well, uh, that was Bettina. I hope everyone enjoyed that. Uh, what have we got in the cards for next week, John? Next week, Phantom of the Paradise for Sideboop Cinema and then uh, a return to uh, regular programming on a Friday. So yes, very good. Sheila will probably have some uh, spicy news for us, I would have thought. Mm, yeah, well, she's got two weeks to prepare now, so we better we better get some hot news from her. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, we said what we said, and so did Patina. Indeed, long live the new flesh. Long live the new flesh. <laughs>